Good morning, everyone. Happy Palm Sunday. Woohoo! Okay, good to see you guys. Um, all right, so we're going to be reading out of Psalm 147 this morning. Uh, this verse calls us to sing praises to the Lord because he is worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. You'll see it up on the screen and for the underlined portions, if you wouldn't mind reading with me. Okay, so it says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble he casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those who hope in his steadfast love. The author of this psalm shows us here that God protects and provides for his creation. He intimately cares about us as his people, and he's abundant in power and wisdom, and he takes pleasure in those who fear and have hope in his steadfast love. This is such a comforting and beautiful truth this morning, um, and as we go into worship, let's just remember that. So we can all stand and get ready for worship.
face the day in your presence all our fears are washed away washed away Hosanna Hosanna you are the God who saves us worthy of all our praises Nothing's gonna stop the plans you made 
our hope and our trust is in the power of God. We sing songs like only a holy God that says who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else can make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. There's power in the name of this holy God. And we saw in our call to worship that God is abundant in power. Paul tells us that it is the power of God to save Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In Romans chapter 15, he tells us that we have hope because of the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And in 1 Corinthians 4, he tells us that the kingdom of God is one of power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And over and over, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we're reminded that it is the power of God that should inform us with how we live. The same power that conquered the grave lives in us, lives in me. Yet how often do we get spiritual amnesia when it comes to this power? We start... Uh, we've been reading with a group of ladies through um, through the Bible, starting at the beginning and reading chronologically, and we just keep coming back to the fact that the Israelites consistently have that spiritual amnesia, like they are they have 
this wonderful deliverance from Egypt, and then they immediately forget, like less than 40 days later. And they have this kind of deliverance, and then they forget, and this kind of deliverance, and then they forget, and then God's providence, and then they forget. And it just happens over and over and over. But we do the same thing with God's power. We start to listen to the seeds of doubt within us, like, what if God doesn't provide for my family in the way that I want him to? Or what if I don't get the job that I really want? Or what if my life doesn't look like I envisioned it when I first started out? Or what if my marriage is really hard? Or what if I want to be married and I'm not? Or what if my child isn't the way that I wanted him to be or expected him to be, or I don't know how to be a parent. How, where is God in all of that? And what about when we think about our own lives, but then the bigger picture of our world, like where is God? What, where's God's power? How will God even be big enough to take care of our city? How will God even be bigger to take care of our government? How will God even be bigger to take care of the war across the world? But the deception goes on and on because we aren't believing in the power of God and the transformation that he brings through the gospel. And as we go into our time of confession, I want you to answer or ask yourself, where are you not believing in this power? Do you believe that this power has rescued you and made you a son or a daughter and then invites you to call him father? Do you believe that this power can transform that loved one out of the darkness of sin and into his marvelous light? Do you believe that this power can and does break the sin that you've struggled with for so long and that his power can put it to death? Because we don't believe in just good advice, this is the power of God who saves, transforms, and comforts us with his great power. So take some time to confess where we don't always find ourselves believing or trusting in the power of our great and holy. we pray that you would remind us of who you are every day in our daily lives, in our families, our marriages, our relationships with colleagues, as we watch the news, that you would be reminding us and bringing back to our mind what we've read in your word and what we know about your character. We pray that we would be so aware of the holiness and the power of you and that all the other things in the world would fade away in comparison and that we wouldn't be tempted to see it as something much, much smaller than it is. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would open our eyes to see what you have for us in your word and open our ears and the eyes of our hearts to hear. It's in your precious name's name we pray. Amen.
All right, how are we doing this morning, guys? Great, Great? awesome. Um, at this time, we're going to go ahead and dismiss all of our three to five-year-olds to the little district where they will be learning about God's promise to Abram, not Abraham, Alex, remember that. <laughs> um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the District Church, and it is a joy and an honor um, to worship with you guys and to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, <clears throat> I apologize. I'm a little nasally getting over a cold this week, so we're just going to power through this, and uh, I, I may have to stop and cough and whatnot. But we are going to celebrate and uh, learn more about um, Holy Week. Uh, if you're not familiar with what today is, it is Palm Sunday, uh, the beginning of Holy Week or Passion Week, as some of us might know. Uh, it is the week that ultimately culminates in the death of Jesus Christ and His suffering on the cross, and it crescendos with His resurrection from the dead. Um, and this is where it begins, in the triumphal entry. And some of you may be familiar with this story. Some of you may not understand why Jesus rides in on a donkey. And so I hope for those who don't understand as well as those who do uh, that we can learn more about who God is and what Jesus is proclaiming as he comes in on this donkey here. The triumphal entry, though, is an important piece of the gospel story. Uh, it is actually only very few stories that we find in the, all four gospels that are reiterated. And not only that, but each gospel actually gives about a third of each book to this last week, not just the triumphal entry, but also uh, the last week of Jesus' life. We find in Matthew, uh, out of 28 chapters, uh, this last week starts in, in chapter 21, where we'll be today. Mark starts in chapter 11, out of 16 chapters. Luke starts in 19, out of 24 chapters. And then John, that gives the longest um, uh, story of Jesus's, uh, the last week of Jesus's life uh, is starting in John 12 and gives nine chapters to this last week. Um, and so it is an important um, narrative that we, we pay attention to. Uh, the, the gospel writers are drawing our attention to this last week and why it is so important. The other thing that's going on in this triumphal entry is that it is the week of Passover. And so you have thousands of Jews who have come back to Jerusalem to celebrate what is happening in Passover and celebrating that what God has done for Israel in bringing them out of slavery uh, in Egypt. And so you have a multitude of people here. Uh, you have real people with real longings, hopes, and expectations for the Messiah to come for a king to come and free them from not only their bondage of slavery, but for those who understood the promises that were given in the Old Testament, for the Messiah, the true one, to come and free them from their bondage to sin and the slavery to it. And so as we read this passage this morning, I hope you keep that in mind, is that these are real people thinking that a real freedom is coming as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So let's read what Matthew has to say about this triumphal entry and what Jesus is telling us about himself through this humble walk on a donkey. Matthew writes this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. 
untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is God's word. Let us go to him in prayer and ask him to bless us this morning. Lord, you are good. And we thank you for this beautiful story of the triumphal entry where you make known that you are king and that you have a kingdom that you are coming to secure. Lord, I pray that we would have the ears to hear this wisdom this morning and receive from your word so that we may trust you as king of our lives. Lord, as your servant this morning, I pray that you would speak through me and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, it is for you that we come and worship and praise, longing to see your glory. And Lord, we know that as we continue to make you king of our lives, we will have joy in this life and the life to come. Open our eyes to see this truth this morning, to behold these wonderful things that you have given us through your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So just kind of quick background as I've set up this, this framework of what's happening on the triumphal entry. What Matthew has done throughout this entire book is try to reiterate this theme that Jesus is the true king of the universe. And in each unique way, the gospels try to demonstrate this truth. They try to demonstrate this profound longing that Israel has. But Matthew specifically focuses on this long-awaited king who came to restore the goodness of creation by bringing in God's kingdom. And this is important for us to understand because this trip, or this walk that Jesus makes, this triumphal entry that he makes, Matthew is trying to highlight this very truth. That as he's said throughout his gospel book, that Jesus is king, he is trying to then ultimately highlight what Jesus is saying to the crowd, that I am this long-awaited king that you've been longing for. Now, here's why this day is so significant, and that all four gospel writers use it in their books. See, this is the first time in which Jesus' ministry, he proclaims to the people and deliberately makes a matter of great importance known that he is the king that is coming for his kingdom. You see, when you read throughout all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that Jesus actually deliberately tries to keep quiet who he is. He goes throughout the cities healing the sick, and he commands those who he has healed, don't say what has happened. Don't go out and tell about who I am. There are times where demons recognize who he is, but he commands them not to tell anyone because it is not the appropriate time. 
And on several occasions, he even tells his disciples to keep quiet his true identity, even though that has been revealed to him, to them. But now we find in the triumphal entry, Jesus, who has seemingly tried to keep his identity hidden, will put it on full display for Israel as well as for us as we read through this gospel account. Because what he is trying to do is he's trying to show that the king has arrived. This Messiah king that you have longed for and waited for has arrived. And he's coming to secure his kingdom, not in the way that they think, but by way of the cross. To secure them by his blood. Now it's important to know and <clears throat> if you know me, you know that I love to be able to look at some Old Testament trajectory and Old Testament history for us to understand the importance of what riding in on a donkey means. So I'm just going to give you this quick overview of, of why Jesus would choose a donkey. It's not just because he's fulfilling a prophecy, but what he's also doing is he's showing a symbol to Israel that he is king and they would have known it. You see, in the Old Testament, prophets had a regular custom which they used over and over again when their words had no effect on the people that they were speaking to. Whenever they'd refused to listen, what the prophets had to do was create something that was so outlandish or so outrageous that they were forced to listen. We see this in Jeremiah 13. We see this in the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel. Over and over, these dramatic actions are taken to get the people of God's attention. And Jesus' actions in this triumphal entry are no different. Entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus was publicly declaring himself to be the son of David, the ultimate savior king who is coming to save his people. And we find this symbol first in 1 Kings 1, where we find the act of riding on a mule or a donkey into Jerusalem proclaimed the king of Israel. It's the first ride that Solomon makes as king of Israel as David has proclaimed him to be the rightful heir of the kingdom. Now, if you go through the book of 1 Kings and you see kind of the story that's happening, David is getting older and he hadn't publicly proclaimed who would be his, his successor. And so one of his sons was trying to take that, was trying to take that throne. But we know from 1 Kings that David had already said Solomon would follow in his footsteps, would be his successor. And so what he needed to do was make a public proclamation to the country, to the nation of Israel, who would be his king. And so he set Solomon up on this donkey and brings him into Israel, much like Jesus is walking in today with the triumphal entry, making this statement that Solomon will be the heir of my kingdom. And so this is what Jesus is doing today. He's making this proclamation that I am the king, that I will be coming for my people. And so this is my main point this morning. And this is what Palm Sunday and trium the triumphal entry is all about is that Jesus is king. That he is making this statement to not only Israel, but also to us 2,000 years later, that Jesus is king. And I want to actually have everybody kind of, not kind of, I just want everybody to say that this morning with me. So on the count of three, we are going to say Jesus is king all together, all right? One, two, three. Jesus is king. That was awesome. I love that. 
So if you're taking notes and you want to write down those three words, that is my main point, where everything will flow out of, is that Jesus is king. Jesus, who is God, our Savior and Redeemer, is the sovereign Lord and King over all the universe. He did not come to Jerusalem to be made king. He came to Jerusalem triumphantly as the king and was going by the way of the cross to secure his kingdom. But guys, it's important for us to understand that he was already king. Our Lord Jesus Christ is, always was, and always will be king over everything. And this is his public announcement that he is king, that he is coming to secure his kingdom by the way of the cross. So what kind of king do we see in, these pass- in, in, these, in this verse throughout this passage? Well, he is a king that comes with authority, but he is also a king that comes with peace. So let's take a look at those first three verses again. Matthew writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied to a donkey tied, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. In verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was already spoken. You see, there are a few things that we can highlight from this passage about Jesus as the Messiah King, but for the sake of time, what I want to elevate this morning is the absolute power and sovereign authority that Jesus has as he sends his disciples to get this cult. As he sends his disciples to pick up this donkey, he sends them where he wanted. He sent the disciples to whom he knew was going to have the donkey prepared, and he also knew to the T how those people would respond. Because ultimately, this is a part of the plan that God had from before the foundation of the earth to redeem his people. This isn't just something where somebody knew of Jesus and they were like, I'm going to just give you this donkey. No, this is a part of the authority that God is showing that he has as king. Now, how could he do this? Well, again, as you walk through the book of Matthew, one of the themes that you find walking through Matthew's story of Jesus' gospel is that power and authority are throughout this book. You see, three times Matthew gives this reader, us, as well as the Israelites, confidence to see in the authority that God has that it comes from his presence with his people. Matthew 1 opens up, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 18, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them also. In Matthew 28, as Jesus gives the Great Commission, all of authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and I will be with you until the end of the ages. God's presence is our confidence because he has authority over all things, because he is king of this universe. But not only do we see just in the presence that Matthew shows us Jesus has this authority, we see it throughout his healing of people with with sins and sicknesses. We see it as he teaches to Israel that they say he has a different authority than any other prophet that has come before him. The crowds were filled with awe. The Pharisees and Sadducees tried to challenge this authority. 
And finally, as I quoted already, the greatest expression Jesus gives to us is that he has authority over all things and that he will be with us as he sends us out. Over and over, the gospel of Matthew is trying to show us that this king of the universe has ultimate authority over all creation. And in his triumphal entry, and even just sending his disciples to get a donkey for him to ride on, he is exercising that authority and exercising this plan that he is a part of from the foundation of the earth to save his people. Now, what I want us to be able to pull from this understanding of Christ's authority is that he has, when you submit to him, authority over your life and over all things that you choose to do, choose to say, choose to think of, from your family, who you're going to marry, who you're going to date, where you go to school, to your influences in your life, your relationships, how you speak, what you watch, how you act, all of it should be in submission to Christ as King because He has the authority. As Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This is important for us to understand that it's not just certain things that we give to Christ as King, but it is our whole lives. But not only is it our whole lives internally, but it's our whole life externally as well. And I think sometimes there's a dichotomy that we have where if we're just pursuing Christ internally, we don't necessarily need to live externally in preaching the gospel, um, sharing with our friends, uh, I mean, just basic evangelism that Jesus calls us to. Or sometimes it will be, hey, I'm so close with a bunch of non-believers and I I can share the gospel, but my life does not look like the holiness that Christ calls me to. But Christ's likeness should be our entire life, from our internal pursuit of holiness to our external pursuit of others, we need to not only acknowledge Christ as King, but we need to live this out in every area of our lives. And we see this in Christ's example, right? Christ has, uh, the, Christ has the 12 disciples that he is discipling and preaching to and, and showing the nature of his kingdom. But also, as you walk through the Gospels, Jesus is de- is called a glutton and a drunkard because he hangs out with sinners. And what does he do when he hangs out with sinners? He doesn't just become like them. He shows them that in all of their tryings, in all of their searching for meaning in life, they could never find it here, but they can only find it in him. And this is, this is a part of our call as believers, is to not just be in this world and not to be like the world, but to be able to step into dark places with the light of the gospel and not have it influence us to where we lose our integrity, we, we don't live in Christ's likeness. But the reality is we, we also need to step into that part of the world. We can't just live in a, a holy huddle where the only thing that we're pursuing is our internal holiness. There's, there's no way that the gospel goes forth if we don't live in Christ's likeness and trust that He is with us, and He has authority over all. So Christ-likeness looks like the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of evangelism in sharing the gospel and sharing our lives with one another.
The second way that Jesus comes as king is that he comes with peace. You remember, Jesus coming in on this donkey was not only a symbol that he was proclaiming that he was king, but it was also the fact that he rode in on a donkey that symbolized what type of king he was and what type of kingdom he was seeking to establish. As John Calvin puts it, Jesus was intending to show by solemn performance what was the nature of his kingdom by riding in on this donkey. You see, what we find in Zechariah 9.9, which we just read describing Jesus as a peaceful king, as a humble king, he's claiming that there's this kingdom that he's bringing in and the type of king that he is, is one of peace. And today we might look at this donkey and think that this isn't very significant that Jesus would ride in on a donkey. I mean, have you ever seen a grown man try to ride a small donkey? It, it, it's, it's humbling, right? But this is how Jesus is riding in, in humility, showing that he, yes, is king, but he is coming in peace. You see, most of the time what would happen in way of the ancient world, especially when a king would come in or a ruler would come in, they would come in on a war horse. Most likely because this is the beginning of Passover and because as even Matthew describes, there was a great stir among the city. Jerusalem during Passover would bring in thousands of Jews to this city. And the Roman Empire would take notice. And so it's understandable as you read through the accounts of the gospel that Pilate is there, that Herod is there, that, that Rome has sent some of their leaders there to make sure that nothing crazy, any type of anarchy would happen. They, they wanted their presence there. And so most likely what would happen is they would have come in on a horse reminding them, you're under Roman rule. But Jesus comes in on a humble donkey to signify his, his kingship and the kingdom that he sought to establish. So two things I want us to see about Jesus being this king of peace as he came in during Passover this week. This first one is that Jesus is the true Passover lamb that makes peace between God and his people. Remember, as I said earlier, Jesus didn't draw a lot of attention to why he came to earth and what was his purpose like he's doing here. But by making this symbol known, he is desiring for the people of Israel as well as for us knowing the connections of our Old Testament, the unmistakable importance of what he was about to do on the cross. The unmistakable importance of his sin-atoning death as the Lamb of God. You see, God's providential plan here isn't that Jesus is coming in just so happens to be the beginning of Passover. No, Jesus is coming in as a symbol to show that what you are celebrating in Passover, I am fulfilling and completing. That lamb that you are taking, taking part of and eating, I will be that ultimate sacrificial lamb for you on your behalf. I am the true Passover lamb that has come to this holy city to make atonement for your sins. Because apart from it and without it, you cannot be saved. 
As J.C. Ryle puts it this way, thank God for the incarnation and the birth of Jesus Christ. Treasure up all his gracious sayings, seek to imitate his holy life, cherish his blessed intercession and priesthood, look for the second coming, long for that second coming. But that one mighty, mysterious work to which our Lord Jesus called the attention to his disciples, called the attention to the whole world, is this. It's the crowning act of God himself, his death on the cursed tree as our blessed substitute. Jesus is calling our attention to the fact that he is king and that he is coming into Jerusalem, coming to secure his kingdom by the way of the cross. There is no other action that Jesus highlights in this way. And what he's saying as he comes in on Passover is that he is the Lamb of God who will make peace for all mankind. And he has made peace for us, for those who have placed our trust in Christ and hold him as king over our lives. Romans tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us in Colossians, through him he reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And Paul reminds us again in Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace. Over and over and over, the scriptures remind us from the Old Testament to the New that Jesus has come as our peace. He has come as the substitute to make peace between God and man, atoning for our sins. Guys, may we prize this reality every day. When we take communion later on, may we sit in that truth that because of the blood and because of the bread, because of Christ breaking his body and shedding his blood, we now have peace with God. Because that's what we need. There isn't anything else in this world that we need except peace and to be reconciled back to God because of our sin. And Christ has done it for us on the cross. And may we prize this reality day in and day out. But Jesus is also showing something about his kingdom. As you walk through the book of Matthew, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God. But the reality, as I said earlier, is when kings during this time period wanted to show that they were in strength, they would come on a horse. But Jesus coming in this Coming in this way, in humility, on this donkey, gentle and lowly, shows us that the type of kingdom that he calls us to is one of peace. He shows us that this is how the citizens of God should live, that we should be ambassadors of peace, that because of the reality that we have been made right with God, that we have peace with him, therefore we should be pursuing peace with one another. The, the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew. It's, it's Jesus' longest sermon that we have recorded. How does it start? Blessed are the poor in the spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Jesus is showing this is the type of kingdom that I have called you to as my citizens, to be peacemakers, to be meek, 
And this is how you are to live, not like Rome, not like the world that seeks power and self-preservation and strength, but you are to live in weakness, in peace, and in humility, striving to put on the full display of God's kingdom. Now, I will say this. This reality that we are to live in peace, that Jesus is coming on a donkey that we see in the triumphal entry is a beautiful truth. But if we know how this ends, there's also a beautiful reality that Jesus does come on a horse. And one day he will return, not to wage war, but he will come back in victory because the war is complete. Defeating Satan, defeating the evil in this world, and once again will claim his people as his own to live in the new Jerusalem where there will be worship for eternity. As the old hymn says, as we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining like the sun, there's no more days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. This is what the reality we have to hope in as Christ comes. Because when he comes again, he's coming in victory. And that is the hope that we live in in the here and now. That when Christ returns, he's returning in victory over the injustices in the world, over hate and shame, miscarriages, cancer, abuse, all that pain, all that shame, all that brokenness will be gone and all of it will be made new. And oh, how I pray. I hope that we have this prayer every single day as John prays, Maranatha, Lord, come soon so that all of this will be restored. So Christ will return, but he's not coming in peace. He's coming in victory, and we have that hope to hold on to today. And finally, as Jesus comes in authority, as he comes in peace, Jesus' announcement as king demands a response. Look at the last three verses of this passage, starting in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went out before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So one of the reasons Jesus' public proclamation is done in this way is that he is forcing a response. He's forcing a response. He's forcing a response from Jerusalem, from the Jewish leaders in the city, and he's forcing a response 2,000 years later, answering this question, who is this? And if there's anything that I've thought about this week, it's that, that question. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Who is he to you? Who is he to me? Is he king? Or do you respond like the crowd? I want you to, I want you to see. There's three, maybe four responses. I'll include the fourth one in, in just the actual Passion Week narrative. But there are four types of responses that we see. The first one is an ignorant hope. You see, Even though Psalm 118 is being shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. 
when you read through this story and you read how Matthew is writing this story, what he is revealing is that there are some in the crowd who have seen Jesus do miracles, he's seen him heal, he's seen him give prophetic authority, and what they see is an ignorant hope that he is coming to take over Rome. He's coming to take over their circumstances in the current life that they live. That he's coming to restore Israel as the nation above all nations. This phrase, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest basically means save this king who's riding on the donkey. But it's not a save as in, Lord, we want you to save us. It's a save this guy because we need his power to take over for our circumstances. It's very much like save the queen. If you've ever heard that phrase as Britain would shout that out, save the queen. It is not asking for salvation from the queen. It's asking that the queen would be saved. And this is what's being shouted here by the crowd. Save this powerful and authoritative man so that he can relieve our current circumstances. But that's not what Jesus came for. That's not what Jesus intended for in his life. But then there's also the ignorant or the apathetic. You see, those who are asking this question, who is this, shows us that there is a crowd in which they choose to do nothing about Jesus. In a time where Jesus is healing, he's had his authority, he's been to Jerusalem before, his name is around the countryside, to ask this question reveals there is an ignorance about who this man is and maybe even a choice that I'm not really going to pay attention to him. I don't need to. And then we find later in the gospel stories, specifically in Matthew 26, there is opposition to Jesus' announcement as king. The Jewish leaders, as they saw Jesus begin to stir up the crowds, then sought to kill him. As we read through the gospel story of Jesus saving Lazarus last week in John 11 and 12, we find that because of his raising Lazarus from the dead, the, Jew, or the Jewish leaders sought to then kill him and put him to death. So there is opposition to this king. And then there are those in the crowd who have full hope and trust that Jesus is the king that he is proclaimed to be the Messiah that has come that will actually free the people of God from their sin and slavery and bondage to it. Jesus' proclamation of being king demanded a response. And it still demands a response today. So how do you respond? How do you respond to this question, who is this? Tim Keller says, Jesus is the most incredibly humble man that you will see, but he's also the absolute immodest person that you will find. He orchestrates his entry to show that he is king, and his message to everyone is that you can either crown me as such or kill me, but there is no middle ground. There is no middle way. And the same is true for us today. When we hear the question, who is this? 
Do we have an ignorant hope that if we trust in Jesus that our current circumstances will just be relieved of, but I don't have to worry about the sin in my life? As long as he heals me physically, as long as he gives me blessings of wealth and health and prosperity, but I don't have to trust him when it comes to my sins. I don't have to give him my entire life. Or is there an ignorance, an apathy towards Christ as king? You're not really going to do much. He's a good prophet. He's a good man. I, I like some of his teachings, but I don't really care about what he calls me to live like. Or is there opposition? That you are like, no, I, I'm not going to call Christ king because I understand the call that he calls me to come and die to everything in my life, and I, I just don't want to do it. Or is your response that one of faith? That you are constantly pursuing Christ-likeness in holiness and external living, that you are sharing the light of the gospel with the dark and dying world around you while pursuing the holiness that he calls you to, but ultimately understanding that we, we still have sin in our lives. But as we mature as believers, we are repenting of that. We are giving that over. We are seeking to put that to death. He can either be king of your life or nothing. John reminds us in the book of Revelation as he writes to the church of Laodicea that you either need to be hot or cold, but you can't be lukewarm. Because what happens when we are lukewarm is that God will ultimately spit us out of his mouth. He will ultimately say, you are not my children. So you can't just like this Jesus. You have to crown him or kill him. It's one or the other. So who, he, who is he to you? I want to close this morning with the taking of communion that we take every single week and, and we are reminded of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We are reminded that he has come as the, this king of our lives and he has come and secured us as his children, as his citizens in this kingdom by the way of this cross. And so we are reminded by it, but we also celebrate in it that every time that we take communion, we are celebrating that we are citizens of this kingdom. That we are like the people in Revelation at the wedding feast of the Lamb, celebrating the kingdom that we are in under the King who has secured us by His blood and the breaking of His body. This is a visual representation of the work of Christ that we get to celebrate each and every week. And we get to look around. And we get to say, those who are taking this with me are going to be with me in eternity. And I get to worship here and now, and I get to worship with them in the future because this king has secured us. So if you don't have the elements, go ahead and stand up and grab them. And we're going to celebrate communion together that Christ has secured us as citizens of this kingdom. And as you're getting the elements for the Lord's Supper. I just want to help us understand the weight of this, right? Christ has secured us as the citizens of his kingdom, 
But he also calls us in his word to examine ourselves in this time. He encourages those who are in conflict with one another to, part, to not partake of communion before you have reconciled with a brother because it is, it is important that we understand the relationship and the nature that we have with one another as sons and daughters of God. And I would encourage those who have not placed their trust in Jesus as King to, to refrain from taking communion to understand the weightiness and understand the celebration that the citizens of God receive. And if you want to know more about what that looks like, I, I would love to share. Dwayne Ransford would love to, to show you what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom and what it means to proclaim and celebrate the Lord's death until he returns. So go ahead and take communion and partake in it, and then I'm going to close this in prayer. And we're going to continue to worship him in song this morning. Lord, you are good. And Lord, you, you came with authority and you came in peace. But Lord, your word also reminds us that you came in love and in joy. The author of Hebrews reminds us that it was the joy that was set before you that you endured the cross. You endured the shame. You endured the wrath of God being poured out onto you for our sake. And so, Lord, as we take communion, as we think through this week of what the triumphal entry means for our lives, Lord, I pray that we would remember just that. That it was with joy that you went to the cross to secure your kingdom. Lord, I pray that that joy would inflame our hearts, would encourage us to live in such a way that shines the glory of God to the world around us. And Lord, that we would pursue what Christ-likeness looks like, not just in the pursuit of holiness, but also in the pursuit of being able to share the life, share life and the gospel with those around us who don't know you as king. And that we would be encouraged to go and make disciples because we know that you are with us and you are king over all, that you have authority over all. Lord, I pray that you would save and that you would give us confidence in our ability to share this good news. It's for your name's sake. I pray. Amen. Would you guys stand to worship? Continue to worship this morning. See you.
Dear God, thank you so much for the truth that we know. Thank you for the message that was preached this morning. I pray that as we go into this week, that we would be pondering your entry, your time in Jerusalem, and also your death and resurrection, which we'll get to celebrate next week. It's in your precious son's name. Thing off. There it is. Okay, cool. Just a couple of quick announcements. Um, tonight, uh, if you haven't gotten the email for the parent and worker meeting, um, go on our church app. It is starting at 6.30. Uh, the um, meeting will be just kind of going over, show them Jesus. Uh, there is a new curriculum that we have introduced as well for our teachers, and we also want our parents to see, hey, this is what your kids are learning, um, and be able to even show them, hey, like, this is how this lesson points to Jesus. So we are just trying to come alongside as a church what your parents are doing with your kids, uh, but for workers as well, we want you guys to be familiar with what um, the curriculum is showing. Uh, and then also, if you uh, have been reading through the book, Show Them Jesus, um, we, we want to continue to walk through that book and, and answer some of those questions of how can we do that. So 6.30 tonight, uh, if you did not receive the email from Greg, uh, it is on our Church Center app as well. I'll have the link and the questions that we'll be going over. So um, if you are free or if you're not free, make time. It is important that you're there. Um, there is some sarcasm there, but I know Greg's like, yes, amen. It is important, but it is important. These, these are our kids. We want to show them Jesus, and, and we want to raise them in the gospel and be able to point them to uh, Christ. And uh, I, I'm going to go on a little tangent. Um, I sent a, um, a, uh, an image to the rights this week that I think it's important for us to, to see this as well um, and see it. It won't be up on the screen. But um, for the people, for kids who grew up and left the church, um, the kids that, they, that stayed, studies have shown that um, there are th- Four or five things that keeps kids in church, keeps them faithful, keeps them growing in the Lord. And one of them is having people, not their parents, in their lives showing them Jesus. And so it is also important that people like myself or people like you all are in the lives of these children, showing them who Christ is um, and, and helping them grow in the knowledge of our Savior. Um, and so that is my tangent and why it is important to be a part of these meetings um, and to be able to talk about how can we continue to point our kids to Christ. Um, this Friday, uh, we have Good Friday coming up. Uh, we will have us here at six o'clock. Um, if you are free that evening before six and you would like to come and kind of walk through uh, just a, a prayer time, um, New Paradigm, which is the church that we share this building with, uh, they are actually setting up prayer stations to um, kind of um, get your mind and heart and soul uh, in the understanding of what Good Friday is all about. And so uh, they're actually doing that from 10.30 in the morning all the way till 5 in the evening. Uh, So you'll have different times where you can come in. Um, From my understanding, it's just open door. You can come at any time and walk through those stations and pray. Uh, I do think it would be a a great time for our church to, to do things with them as well as them with us. And so if you have free time on Friday and would like to do that, or maybe you can come an hour before our uh, gathering and walk through prayer, prayer 6.30, okay. Um, yes, you can still come and, uh, and, and walk through those prayer stations, and then we'll have uh, our service at 6.30, which will be about an hour of worship and just understanding the weightiness of, of what Good Friday is all about. And then Sunday is Easter, where we'll be celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Um, once again, there are studies that show uh, if people get invited to Easter. They're more than likely to come on Easter and or Christmas Eve um, than any other time. So if you have friends that you know don't go to church, aren't saved, and they know Easter's coming, just ask. 
I mean, the worst they can do is say no, right? Um, and so uh, I would encourage you uh, to invite your friends to the Easter service to be able to celebrate that Jesus has resurrected uh, and he has put to death, death and sin on our behalf. Um, and then finally, just to keep this on your radar, May 22nd, we will be having our family dedication for uh, Leah Mills and uh, what is the Duran's name? Um, Jace. Gosh, I had it. I had it and then I forgot it. Cool. Two kids. He is very new. Um, so just be prepared. Put that on your calendar. We'll put it on our church calendar as well for family dedication. Um, and we'll celebrate uh, those two children and the blessing God has given us. You guys are dismissed. Go and remember the gospel. Forgot the kid's name. Sorry.